Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster and moderator of these forums. Today marks the beginning of the 11th successive year of our sponsoring these forums. All 73 of them, to date, have been faithful one way and another to our inexhaustible theme, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today, the voice is the voice out of our rich American heritage, the voice of Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, author of the Declaration of Independence and the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, founder of the University of Virginia, scientist, farmer, man of letters, architect, paleontologist, linguist, political theorist, librarian, and diplomat. When he was in his early 30s, a contemporary wrote of Jefferson that he could plot an eclipse, survey a field, let's see, uh, plan an edifice, bre break a horse, and play the violin and dance the minuet. So. Let me hasten to add that the voice that carries us back to the inexhaustible figure of Jefferson, the power of his words, the timeless quality of his insights, the momentum of his passion for the life, health, and progress of our free society, is that of Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson is a native of North Dakota and lives today in Boulder, Colorado. He is a 1977 graduate of the University of Minnesota. As a Rhodes Scholar, he has a B.A. and M.A. from Oxford University, where he's also on the verge of earning his D.Phil. His fascinating thesis topic, The Influence of St. Augustine on the Sermons of John Donne. He has taught at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and the University of North Dakota, Grand Forks. He teaches 17th century Renaissance English and currently is teaching Latin. Since 1984, Mr. Jenkinson has been doing his scholarly impersonation of Thomas Jefferson. In fact, he's done it over a thousand times before state legislatures, judicial conferences, colleges and universities, numerous schools up and down the land. I hope that when President Bush left the Hyatt Hotel across the street this morning, that he saw your name on the outside bulletin board and remembered that as recently as last year, he presented you the National Endowment for the Humanities Charles Frankel Prize for exemplary work in the public humanities. How about that? It is highly appropriate that this forum, dedicated to resurfacing Jefferson's passion regarding the dignity and potential of every citizen, should be co-sponsored by the Minneapolis Foundation as part of its 75th anniversary, its 75th anniversary celebration of its dedication to community and profoundly human interests. Mr. Jenkinson, we welcome you, even as in the same breath, we welcome the third president of these United States, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Thank you.
citizens of the American West. Let me say, first of all, what a pleasure it is to come west at last. Although I was the purchaser of Louisiana in 1803 from Bonaparte and the foremost architect of our westward expansion, in fact, the disagreeable burden of political life kept me huddled on the eastern seaboard throughout my career. And though I dreamed of coming here myself to conduct a reconnaissance of the West on behalf of the Enlightenment, in fact, I never traveled farther than 60 miles west of my birthplace in Virginia. Instead, I sent my young friend and neighbor, Meriwether Lewis West, to explore the great territory of Louisiana. His science was among the most important in American life. And so it's a pleasure to come here myself. And I'm glad to see that we have indeed wrested the British and Father Hennepin's French papists from this country of Minnesota, too. <laughs> Having said that, let me say with what trepidation I appear before you today. First of all, I am not an orator. Unlike Patrick Henry and that evil genie of American political life, Alexander Hamilton, I am unused to public speaking. In my own lifetime, I made as few public speeches as I could. In fact, in the election of 1800, one of the most hotly contested elections in your history, I made no public appearances whatsoever. I spent the entire campaign season gardening and conducting scientific experiments at Monticello. There were no interviews with the press, no pamphlets or other campaign materials. Of course, there was no physical likeness of me available to the American electorate. If you can imagine it, in the year 1800, the American people voted for their president on political principle. <laughs> Which meant that I was narrowly elected over my Massachusetts friend, John Adams, who took nine years to forgive this insult to his dignity. So please forgive me if I don't give a speech today. I'll talk for a few moments and then turn to you for your comments and questions. One of the few speeches I gave in my life was a disaster. When I was elected president in 1801, it was important that I give an inaugural address. I was staying at a boarding house about 200 yards from our unfinished Capitol building in our new federal city on the Potomac. That morning I walked unembarrassed by a military escort from that boarding house to the Capitol. It was crowded with legislators and well-wishers. I took the oath of office from my Virginia cousin, John Marshall, a man whom I called that gloomy malignity, and then took from my pocket a paper on which I had written my vision of America. Unfortunately, I had a speech impediment and a slight stutter. I was an exceedingly shy man, and on this occasion I was more nervous than usual. And so I mumbled my way through my inaugural address, and no one in the crowded Senate chamber heard my vision of America except John Marshall, and he did not like what he heard. Earlier that morning, he had written to one of his arch-federalist friends in Massachusetts, saying, Mr. Jefferson's Republicans, I find, can be classed into two groups, theoretical visionaries and absolute terrorists. 
Among the latter, he said, I am not disposed to classify Mr. Jefferson. So I mumbled my way through my inaugural address, and those who had gathered rushed forth afterwards to buy printed copies on the street to see what I intended for what I always called the Second American Revolution. Moreover, I am chagrined to come west at last and find myself speaking in a neo-Gothic cathedral dedicated to Calvinism. I will say in candor, and I hope without offending any of you, that I once characterized Calvin as the greatest atheist of the modern world. <laughs> I said to John Adams in a letter of 1823, if ever a man worshipped a false god, he did. The being described in his doctrine is not the god whom you and I acknowledge and adore, the creator and benevolent governor of the world, but a demon of a malignant spirit. It would be more pardonable to believe in no god at all than to blaspheme him by the atrocious attributes of Calvin. And in particular, the doctrine of double predestination appears to me unacceptable to the dignity of man. I was rather irreverent about organized Christianity. I once said in a moment of uh, cynicism, perhaps, we ought to gather all of the evangelical, the charismatic religious leaders of the United States into one public square for a week debate about discipline and doctrine and liturgy in the hopes that they will mutually exhaust each other and disappear forever. <laughs> And so, with respect to what I characterized as the maniac ravings of Calvin, I will only say, as I did in my first inaugural address, that this neo-Gothic travesty of reason shall be permitted as a monument to the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. But I mean no disrespect. I said in my book Notes on the State of Virginia, whether you believe in one God or none or twenty, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, and therefore is not a public policy issue. The United States represents tolerance. In 1820, I wrote a letter saying, I hoped within 50 years all young men in America would be Unitarians. I hope this will still come to pass in your time. <laughs> Finally, though, I am pleased that there are few or no lawyers in the audience. <laughs> a young man wrote to me when I was in retirement at Monticello and said, he was a member of Congress from Virginia, he said, Mr. Jefferson, why is it that nothing seems to get done in the Congress of the United States? I wrote back saying, sir, whenever you gather 150 lawyers into one room at one time, nothing good can come of it. These are, after all, men who are paid to talk by the hour. <laughs> no, sir, to expect good sense and good government from a body of lawyers is to expect something that never has been and never can be in the history of the world. I have been asked today to talk about civic virtue. I've been asked to describe the America I see in 1990 and suggest remedies. Let me do that as briefly as possible. It seems to me that you went wrong when you let Mr. Hamilton have his way with this continent. I envisioned a peaceful agrarian nation of family farmers living quietly on subsistence farms 
having little or nothing to do with a moneyed economy, living in freedom, reading perhaps Homer in the original Greek during their leisure hours, educating themselves liberally, participating democratically in government, having suspicion of power and men of power with little or no foreign diplomacy and only a militia until actual invasion. I believe that a national debt is a national tragedy and that no nation under any circumstances has the right to pass on its national debt to its children. This is a form of taxation without representation. It's a tyranny that not even George III could have envisioned. And so I would pin most of my disappointment with American history upon Mr. Hamilton's able shoulders. Secondly, I would say that Andrew Jackson did no great service to America. He was rising in Tennessee when I was an elderly man. I considered him a demagogue, extremely dangerous. And in my opinion, he vulgarized all of the democratic impulses of America. Third, in 1817, 18, 18, and 19, I noticed that slavery was crossing the Appalachian Mountains and was producing great sectional discord in the West, particularly in the Missouri country. And when the Missouri Compromise occurred in 1819, I said in a letter, this surely is the death knell of the nation. This issue, the abomination of slavery, has now become a sectional issue. And that certainly means we will have a conflagration over this moral disease. It seems to me that your Mr. Lincoln was fundamentally in error, at least on constitutional terms, when he decided that the Union was inviolable and should be held together at the cost of a million young men's lives. The Union is a voluntary compact of constituent states. When any state, Minnesota for example, wishes to secede and follow its own destiny, under compact theory of government you have a sacred right to do so, and you ought to threaten to do so from time to time to remind Washington of the sovereignty of constituent states. Third, or perhaps fourth, it seems to me that you have failed to take seriously the need for constitutional change. I said in a letter to Mr. Madison from Paris in 1784 that every constitution inevitably becomes less useful in the course of time, that no generation has a right to impose its own values on the next generation, that the earth belongs in usufruct to the living, not the dead, and therefore, according to Mr. Locke's theory of sovereignty, each generation should create a constitution for itself, enact positive laws on its basis, but when that generation passes from the scene, its positive laws and its constitution should be voided so that the next generation can inherit the earth in fee simple. I said every generation uh, should expire entirely at a certain point, and using Mr. Buffon's actuarial tables, I determined that each generation existed for 19 years. If you had followed my advice, therefore, you would be celebrating your 11th American Constitution and not your second. I said some men look on constitutions with a kind of sanctimonious reverence, and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human, 
and assume what they did to be beyond amendment. To this I absolutely disagree. The enlightenment of humankind requires that we change our fundamental codes from time to time so long as we leave the rights of man intact. And I hope that you will take seriously the option in your time of tearing up your constitution and finding something more useful for the dreams of people moving into the 21st century. The notion of a living constitution that can be reinterpreted from generation to generation by an oligarchy on the Supreme Court this is the most anti-democratic institution in America. Broad construction is unacceptable in a democracy. We need strict construction. And we certainly mustn't open the door to implied powers because once that door is opened, it can never again be shut. I did not live to see the full force of the Industrial Revolution, but I could not have approved of it. We need small industry industry tied to the carrying capacity of nature and supervised by families. Cities and industrial plants are so many open sores on the face of the landscape. And I said to Mr. Madison, the more of our citizens who will stay engaged in agriculture, the more free and independent and virtuous and indeed happy we shall be. Farmers are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people whose breasts he has made his peculiar deposit for genuine and substantial virtue. And if Minnesota is more decent, more intelligent, and more freedom-loving than other states in America in your time, I ascribe this entirely to your agrarian base, which you must not let erode. This is the strength of a free society. The temptation in every new country is to rush to empire, to build a strong army and a navy, to engage in foreign intrigue, to find interests that must be protected in other places on the planet, to create client states, to have a centralized and consolidated government. This is a mistake. The rush to empire is an evil temptation which ought to be avoided by a freedom-loving people. I suggested that we have a, not an empire for Napoleon's vision or an empire for Hamiltonian commercial activity, but rather what I called an empire for liberty. I envisioned that we would eventually require both oceans, a continental nation, but I wanted it to be a decentralized nation with freedom at its very center, avoiding the consolidation in Washington or any other capital which effectively disenfranchises the individual and the constituent states. And I remind you of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, in many ways the most important, that states that all powers not delegated to the national government instead belong to the states and to the people. The state should be your primary sovereignty. Little or no respect should be paid to faraway Washington. When you send a senator to Washington in your, in your own time and your tax dollars, you know exactly what happens. Both of them disappear without a trace. <laughs> I suggested something called ward republics, dividing the nation into little clusters of 100 people who would become a republic on the Venetian scale or the Florentine scale, 
They would name themselves and write a casual constitution, and every one of those hundred citizens would meet every Saturday in a public square for true democratic participation. This would be the center of government life in America. Temporarily, a few representatives would leave that ward republic to the state government, and in times of international emergency, perhaps a representative would go off to faraway Washington. But your destiny would be settled right here in a community in Minnesota, and it would look, I must say, a good deal more like Lake Wobegon than St. Paul. And finally, to get to the heart of the matter, it seems to me that democracy, self-government, can only work if there is a high level of information and education in the body politic. I said, enlighten the people liberally, and every form of tyranny, both of mind and body, will disappear like fog when the sun rises in the morning. I said, if you expect to be a nation ignorant and free, you expect something that never has been and never can be in the history of the world. In 1779, I proposed a bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge that would have created free primary education for all young people in Virginia, men and women, free secondary education for the best of those, and some university scholarships for what I called a few geniuses raked from the rubbish annually. Um, this system, which would have been the first free public educa education system in the United States, would have destroyed what I call the pseudo-aristocracy. Some people are born into wealth and privilege through no merit of their own. I was such a person. We must destroy the pseudo-aristocracy and put in its place what I would call a natural aristocracy, an aristocracy based upon virtue and intelligence and a lively sense of justice. The whole business of a good society and good government, in my opinion, is to destroy the pseudo-aristocracy and replace it with what you might call a meritocracy. We need our best minds and our most creative people to take on leadership in a self-government. This can only be done through free public education and free circulating libraries in every county. In my time, the legislatures of all states thought this chimerical, too expensive for their limited tax base. In some sense, the only legitimate function of government after a modest Coast Guard and the delivery of the mail is the education of our young people. This is a foreign policy and a national defense much greater than armies or bullets. And so I urge you in your time to reclaim public virtue in a few simple ways. First of all, there must be a new agrarian movement in the United States. You can begin today by growing plants in your houses and next spring by planting gardens. I said once, no person who has ever grown a garden can be anything but humble. Eating and clothing ourselves are the two fundamental economic activities of all humanity. And the farther you are away from those simple, natural activities, the less sane, less free, and less virtuous you will be. And so I urge you to plant something and to pay respect to creation. Secondly, if you wish for X number of dollars of goods and services from your government, you must tax yourself X, and in your time, X plus one. There is no longer any justice in deficit spending. This is tyranny. Third, you must emancipate yourself from dependence upon foreign articles. This will inevitably lead you into intrigue and war. Most wars are, after all, fought over silk scarves and cherries and fine wines. 
things that no reasonable person requires and which can be withdrawn at the moment of international hostility. I believe in an isolationist America. In fact, I said to John Adams in a letter around 1816, if only we could be a fourth or fifth rank nation like China, then perhaps this experiment in republicanism will prevail. But once we become a world power, farewell liberty, farewell freedom. I urge you to call a constitutional convention and to recreate America in your own image. Remember that we who gathered in Philadelphia, although I was not amongst that group, lived in a pastoral America, huddled on the eastern seaboard with no industrial plant and no foreign policy. That simple system belonged to an agrarian age. And finally, some, some remedies if you want to avoid bloody revolution. You can begin in November. You will have it in your power to return 435 members of the House of Representatives to private life. I urge you to do so. And fully a third of your senators might follow those representatives. You can try to amend the Constitution, although in my time in 1824 I said this was too difficult. The great problem is to have it neither too difficult nor too easy. Even in 1824 it was almost impossible to amend the Constitution of the United States. If that doesn't work, I suggest a few cheerful impeachments. Uh, Impeachment need not be a moral issue. It can be a simple issue of reclaiming your natural rights. And I would particularly urge this on members of the Supreme Court of the United States. Think of these nine individuals. They're not elected by you. They're appointed. And once confirmed by the Senate, they serve for life. And if you have studied constitutional history, you know that they tend to live far too long once appointed. <laughs> They are unelected, virtually unimpeachable. It's never successfully been done in American history. This means that they are irresponsible by definition because they are not responsive to the needs of the American people. And the notion that the will of you, the sovereign, can be overturned by nine oligarchs without appeal strikes me as an abomination to democratic theory. The will of the people is embodied in its representatives. If there's a quarrel between branches of government, the legislative must be supreme. And I will close my discussion of that by quoting a refrain from a poem by Coleridge, who was a romantic poet emerging in my time. He wrote a poem about pollution on the River Rhine, and he said, The River Rhine, it is well known, doth wash the city of Cologne. But tell me, nymphs, what power divine shall henceforth wash the River Rhine? The Supreme Court may think it's more enlightened than the people of America, but what happens when that court is unenlightened, as will very often be the case? Then who is the arbiter and protector of the Enlightenment? If these simple, peaceful solutions don't work, then and only then you must begin to employ terror to reclaim your rights. But I would not rule out terror. I went to my grave defending the reign of terror in France. I was perhaps the only American who did so. When Lafayette wrote me a whining letter about the terror, I wrote back saying, Sir, did you expect to be transported from despotism to enlightenment on a feather bed? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time 
with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. And I find that I like a little rebellion now and then. It's as important in the political world as a thunderstorm is in the natural world. If you renounce terror, you will not long remain free. That's a bloody but an important truth. Thank you very much. Jefferson, you may remember that one Margaret Bayard Smith had expected before meeting you for the first time you to be a violent, vulgar, bold, and profligate man. But after you, she met you, she wrote, oh, he is a good man. Uh, you didn't have quite that bad press in our anticipating your coming, but we didn't know you that well. After this half hour with you, we can only say he's a good man. We thank you. <laughs> For our listening audience, let me simply remind that uh, you have been listening for the past half hour and will be for the next half hour to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. You have been listening to Clay Jenkinson, his theme, Renewing Our Community Values, A Conversation with Thomas Jefferson. In a warm, personal, and scholarly way, he has enabled us to revisit the words, the spirit, the wisdom, the humor of the third president of the United States, and it has been altogether engaging and will continue so. The co-sponsor of today's program is the Minneapolis Foundation, and we salute what they do for our community and welcome their cooperation in presenting this program. Mr. Jefferson, would you be willing to return to the podium, sir, and we'll uh, pose some questions. I should add that this is the time when you can pass to the aisles any questions you've put on those yellow cards or any other card. Uh, the ushers in the aisles will pick them up, bring them forward, and then they'll be sorted for the sake of preventing repetition, not for the sake of preventing hard questions, and uh, we will present them to you uh, as they come. While that's happening, sir, uh, I would like the privilege of, of posing a question. Uh, you did indeed in the last half hour uh, uh, provide a coup de grace for, uh, for Calvin, whose name is sometimes referred to here. <laughs> uh, in reading about your life, however, I, I have discovered that uh, you are, were not altogether anti-religious, and uh, I've even discovered that in the course of time you did a harmony of the Gospels comparing the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the sayings of Jesus. Would you elaborate a bit more, sir, on where you're coming from in that realm? Indeed, I am not an atheist, although I have been charged with that all of my life. I'm a free thinker and a deist. As I said in a letter to John Adams in 1816, the world is so orderly and beautiful and so perfect in its Newtonian mechanics that it must uh, imply a design, a creator. 
But my creator, I must say, in respect, looks a good deal more like Isaac Newton than the Old Testament patriarch that you worship mm -hmm. here. Um, <laughs> as a deist, I believe that God created a perfect universe, like a clock. Uh, he wound up this mechanism, and now he stands serenely by and watches it slowly unwind, never interfering in the day-to-day -day life of the planet, but perhaps from time to time, once every million years or so, he comes in to tune the clock to perfect whatever imperfections there are in the instrument. But he is an absentee landlord, in my view, and humans must not depend upon him for justice. In fact, my complaint against Christianity is simple. It generates a certain complacency amongst the people because it encourages them to postpone their dreams of justice and utopia to the next world. By waiting for an afterlife where things will get sorted out by a triumphant Christ, people forget that we must create utopia here and now. We can only count on our life from the cradle to the grave, and we must demand justice here. Now, I did edit the Bible. I was asked by Dr. Priestley, if I disagreed with so much that was in the Bible, why not cut out everything that was obscure, um, irrational, uh, mystical, or out of keeping with human dignity and reason? I did so in the course of a week while serving as president of the United States. In the end, I produced what is now known as Mr. Jefferson's Bible. It was a, a small volume, 48 pages. <laughs> and it included a brief biographical sketch of the Nazarene and some of what I called his more clear-headed sayings. Uh, but it ends with the, the stone being rolled up to the tomb, as, as rightly it should. And uh, this Bible was meant to find the diamonds in the dunghill. Most of what is wrong with Christianity was imposed upon it by Paul and the Platonists. But to find the true Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, is quite simple. Mm -hmm. I hope, sir, so you're not offended by the fact that on that pulpit is the Bible in its complete version. <laughs> Certainly not. You've been quoted as having said, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. Uh, would you care to elaborate a bit on that? Did you feel quite that strongly about it? Well, not after my two terms as president. Um, <laughs> I was excoriated by the press of the United States, as I think few individuals have, have ever been. In fact, I was so chagrined by some of the blasphemies um, and um, denigrations uh, placed upon me that I suggested at one point in 1886 that perhaps a few wholesome prosecutions would not be out of order. Fortunately, this never happened. Uh, I believe in absolute freedom of the press. We must have information in the hands of the citizens. In fact, I once suggested that we uh, underwrite newspaper subscriptions so that every family would have access to the information it required to vote responsibly. So newspapers are certainly important, but uh, you can't imagine uh, the hostility which was shown to me when I ran for the presidency. Um, for example, I was called atheist, antichrist, free thinker, free lover, Jacobin, uh, demagogue, uh, mountebank, and I was told on good authority that widows in Delaware hid their Bibles under their beds for fear that Mr. Jefferson would abolish Christianity. This, I assure you, I did not do. Question from this audience. Do you think the United States should abandon an isolationist role in order to guarantee liberty in other parts of the world? 
The United States has no duty to protect the freedom of any peoples outside of its own borders. If the Germans or the Czechs or the South Americans or the Persians wish to be free, this is their responsibility. If they can't do it themselves, they do not deserve freedom. Sir, roughly 200 years after you advocated freeing the slaves and 125 years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, we still find that today's African Americans do not share the fruits of our society as much as the whites do. How do you explain this? What can be done to change this? Well, this is a hard question, and I certainly don't want to present myself as a champion of the Emancipation Movement. I worked hard for emancipation, but as some of you know, I had slaves all of my life, died insolvent, and my slaves were not freed as I had hoped, but sold by the banks at Richmond. Uh, there is no part of me that wishes to justify my ownership of slaves or slavery in general. But I will say in candor that it was my opinion that black people and white would never live in harmony on this continent after the beginning uh, was so tainted by the slave institution. Uh, if it had come some other way, if there had been some freer mingling of black and white citizens, then perhaps we could have lived in harmony here. I said in notes on the state of Virginia, former slaves will always resent their masters. Former masters will always fear reprisals by our Negro citizens. There will be permanent racial tension in this culture because of this ugly and abominable institution. And I suggested, therefore, that once emancipation came, that we offer repatriation in their native Africa to those peoples who had li been living peacefully and abducted against their will. If they did not wish to return to Africa, I suggested that we create a homeland for them somewhere out in Louisiana. If they wished to mingle with us in our communities, I was certainly glad to have them, but it seemed to me that this racial tension would be a permanent feature, and that is, in some sense, the sin of America. You, sir, were a strict constructionist. You were involved with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, even though the Constitution of the United States gave you no authority to do so. Why did you do this? Why did I purchase Louisiana when I was a strict constructionist and mm -hmm. the Constitution did not contain a provision that enabled the United States to expand? Uh, hard question. I called it a fugitive occurrence. I sent ministers to Paris to deal with uh, Napoleon's ministers in the hopes that we could secure permanent port access to the port of New Orleans. Most of our agricultural produce from the Trans-Appalachian region got to market along the corridor, the road of the Mississippi, and that nation that controlled the mouth of the Mississippi controlled the entire agricultural destiny of the United States. So I sent ministers to at least get us perpetual port rights in New Orleans. Well, Napoleon was bankrupt and desperate, and so he offered us New Orleans if and only if we would also purchase Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, I called it a fugitive occurrence. It certainly would have happened if it had been John Adams or George Washington or Mr. Madison as well as if it had been I. And so I beat down reluctantly my constitutional scruples and accepted the purchase. I, di I did draft two amendments which would have enabled the government to take on this authority, but unfortunately Napoleon was growing capricious and Mr. Madison warned me that we might lose our opportunity for Louisiana if we were doctrinaire, mm -hmm. strict constructionists. So. We went ahead with the purchase. By the way, I, when I purchased Louisiana, we doubled the size of the United States with a single stroke of the pen. Not a single life was lost, unlike, say, Napoleon's failed experiment in Europe. Mr. Hamilton came to me after I made the purchase and said, why didn't you just invade Louisiana? Why buy it? But in fact, I bought 
uh, that great territory for three cents per acre, the greatest land sale in the history of humanity. And I understand that three cents per acre is just what farmland is worth again in Minnesota today. So. <laughs> Sir, what was your relationship with your slave, Sally? I hesitate to be so frank about a delicate matter, but your forthrightness has led me to ask. Uh, two, two responses to that. First, let me say, as I often did, priests are like cuttlefish. They spread an inky black gloom through the very medium in which they swim. Um, <laughs> if that's not sufficient response, let me say that this is absolutely none of your business, sir. <laughs> Candor is one thing, but uh, for you to impose... Uh, your scandalous remarks on the life of a private individual is unacceptable. You have a right to know about me as a public official what reflects upon my ability to perform public duties. What happens in my household or my bedroom is absolutely none of your business. <laughs> to change the subject... <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, sir, of the attempts at censorship of books in libraries and schools? I believe in the illimitable freedom of the human mind. I believe that the First Amendment is a practical absolute. That is, we can think of exceptional cases in which that freedom must be curtailed or restricted, but they must be truly extraordinary circumstances. And cultures, and especially governments, move much too quickly towards censorship and the limiting of ideas. I come from the school of Adam Smith. Um, he, in 1776, published his Wealth of Nations, which argued for free trade as the most reasonable approach to human economy. Similarly, we believed in the Enlightenment that there should be free trade in ideas, that truth is great and will prevail when left to itself. And no mind, including a young mind, is incapable of sorting out truth from error. People lose respect for government when government controls the spread of ideas. Ideas are free, and no one has anything to fear from the truth. Sir, a series of questions about the Constitution. What resources did you consult prior to writing the Declaration of Independence? Well, as I said in, a, in, a, in my uh, fragmentary autobiography, I consulted no book or pamphlet. This was not meant to be a time for scholarship or for original thinking. This was a time to articulate the American common sense on the subject. And so I wrote it in the course of about two weeks in a boarding house in Philadelphia, but I consulted no book uh, whatsoever. However, behind the Declaration of Independence, which is perhaps the point of the question, stood particularly the work of John Locke. Uh, Locke's second treatise on government was of inestimable value in drafting it. Uh, many of the phrases of the Declaration of Independence come from him. A bit of it comes from Rousseau. A good deal of it comes from Adam Ferguson and the Scottish Enlightenment, some of it from Bolingbroke. But on the whole, I must say that this was an attempt merely to express a people's natural rights. These rights are not written in books. They're not codified by Blackstone or Cook. These rights are inscribed in the heart of man, and it's the duty of government not to create rights but merely to recognize rights. And so I was, I think, mm -hmm. speaking as any reasonable person would speak in such circumstances. What, mm -hmm. what distinguishes the Declaration of Independence, perhaps, 
is what John Adams in a moment of flattery called a peculiar felicity of expression. But the ideas were hackneyed and commonplace. <laughs> Please clarify in the same vein with specific examples why you believe the U.S. Constitution cannot be applied to current life. Well, there are two ways to look at a Constitution. One is to read it strictly, like a recipe, and the other is to read it broadly, like a, a piece of wax. Alexander Hamilton's and John Marshall's views were that it should be a piece of wax to be moved in whatever direction they liked. I can't agree with that. I think a Constitution should be written in plain English. It should be understandable to a farmer or a household servant or a mechanic, as well as to a Supreme Court justice. Uh, this Constitution should be so simple that everyone in the United States understands entirely what its purpose is. When it ceases to be useful, it should be amended. When it ceases to be amendable, it should be torn up. And under any circumstance, it should be torn up every 19 years. Uh, a living Constitution, let me just say, uh, with a reflection on your time, if you can open the door of the Constitution to permit a Bank of the United States, it's not clear that you can close it to keep out a central intelligence agency. That's the problem. We must spell out what's intended when we give authority to government. If we don't spell it out, then government will always become tyrannical. I see a Constitution as a restraining document, not an enabling document. Your successor in the highest office of the nation visited across the street last night and this morning. What do you think of persons paying money to eat in his close proximity? Uh, this strikes me as um, a sign that people have too much money and too little sense. <laughs> In your opinion, are we headed for another American Revolution, one of the poor, uh, the uh, oppressed, the disenfranchised? I wish I could say yes, because I think it would be salutary. I said to Mr. Madison in a letter from Paris, this was the most unguarded letter I ever wrote. I said, as long as there's the West, an infinite space for anyone to move into who wants opportunity and a farm, there will never be any fundamental social problems in America because every discontented family could simply vote with its feet and cross the next frontier. But once we fill the continent, I said, then we must find ways to redistribute wealth and opportunity from time to time. This could include a rigidly graduated income tax or more violent revolutions in property. Crime, I believe, as an optimist, is not endemic. It's not a sign of human depravity. It's not a Pauline or Augustinian reflection. Crime is low-level rebellion. When people cannot feed and clothe themselves, they turn inevitably to crime. If there were simple economic justice in the United States, I think you would find few or no criminals, and those few you had, you could easily rehabilitate. Uh, I see no reason for a nation as rich as yours to so divide property that literally millions of people who would work if they could cannot find employment or farms. And let me remind you of what John Locke said in his second treatise on government. He said, everyone by natural right has a right either to a farm or to a job in an economy. If there are no jobs or farms and you live next to me and I have 10,000 acres and you none and I am living luxuriously and you are impoverished, you have a natural right 
climb over my fence and take from my property what you require to eat and clothe yourself and your family. We are guaranteed decency by virtue of being human, and any government that does not work diligently to provide it for all of its citizens is by its nature corrupt and ripe for revolution. Somewhat in the same vein, Karl Marx just walked into the room and points out that you ignore economic threats to civic virtue, that what you call the pseudo-aristocracy and he calls the capitalist class will always thwart virtue in the defense of profit. If you and Karl were to debate, how do you think this discrepancy would be resolved? Let me say I didn't live to, uh, <laughs> to meet Karl Marx. Um, if I had, we would have agreed on some things and disagreed on others. What bothers me most about Karl Marx's view, as I understand it in retrospect, is that he spoke of the idiocy of rural life. Now, no one who speaks of the idiocy of rural life can be a decent thinker, in my opinion. Um, his, his view was entirely urban. You know, he spoke of urban uh, masses, unemployed and hungry. Uh, this would have been unthinkable if my vision of America had prevailed. But he speaks in my opinion from what you describe, a good deal like John Adams, who believed that humans are um, fundamentally greedy and that all classes attempt to exploit all other classes, that an aristocracy is inevitable no matter what your social planning might be, and that a good government is one that acknowledges this and puts the aristocracy in a Senate where they can be laughed at and ignored. Um, I couldn't ever agree with this. I'm, let me say, this, this is perhaps to back up a little, but I think it's important. I'm a member of the Enlightenment. Um, some have called me the foremost American exemplar of the Enlightenment. I don't know that that's true. I would call Dr. Franklin much superior. But I believe as a member of the Enlightenment in the indefinite perfectibility of, of man. Now, I'm not like those French philosophes who believe in the infinite perfectibility of man. That might perhaps be to wish too much. But we have never seen how greatly we can improve human society and human nature by first reforming institutions and making them just, and second, educating the people so they can enjoy their full dignity. As a member of the Enlightenment, I believe that we stood at the beginning of a great new epoch in human history in which all the bad institutions, and particularly organized Christianity, would be reformed. People would be liberated and educated. They would learn to live with restraint and would restrain themselves rather than expecting Mr. Hobbes' Leviathan to do it. And so I believe that humans are good and capable of indefinite progress. I don't see any reason to disbelieve that in your time. Mr. President, if you had the chance to tell the current occupant of that office, who was in town recently, uh, what he should do to get the Congress to begin to address the budget dev deficit, what would you tell him? In my view, this is not a question to put to the President of the United States, but to the constituents, to the voters. I can't believe that they would send back to Washington anyone who wouldn't solve the basic problems of the United States or attempt to. But the President has little or no authority over Congress. I was the most successful early President in encouraging Congress to follow my vision. But even so, I was not always successful. And to be more than moderately successful would be a form of, I think, exploitation of another sovereign branch of government. But it seems to me I do have some advice for your, your current president. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I would urge him to read some books. Um, <laughs> um, 
That, that it seems to me, would be useful. Um, I think it's unacceptable for um, a sovereign, a president of the United States, to sell his time. Um, and if you have any stomach, you won't return him to office if that's his procedure. In a democracy, there should either be no access to the executive or unlimited access. But certainly the, uh, the neo-Hamiltonian practice of selling presidential time is, in my view, an impeachable act. And, and finally, of course, this list could go on and on. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that your president remember that the United States is an idea more than an empire. And the greatest defense of American principles is those principles themselves, not armies or navies or advance guards or imperial politics in the rest of the world. In fact, that degrades the American idea. And then I'll say finally, just in the despair with which I might look on the current political scene in your time, it reminds me of something one of your more interesting recent presidents said, uh, Gerald Ford, when he was annoyed by something or other, once said, if Abraham Lincoln were alive today, he would be rolling over in his grave. <laughs> the logic is thoroughly modern, but I see there is an insight there. Mr. Jefferson, if, as you say, the U.S. should not interfere with the governments of other countries, how do you explain America's need during the Revolutionary War for French aid? Well, this is, I suppose, a contradiction and maybe a hypocrisy. We were glad to have French help. Uh, but remember, this Revolutionary War in America must be seen in the larger European wars that racked the old world during our time. In fact, I think it can be said accurately that American foreign policy from 1789 until the end of my life was fundamentally altered by the fact of the French Revolution and the reaction that set in in Europe. Families ceased to talk with each other. Old friends like John Adams and I parted company over the French Revolution. European madness and bloodshed had an impact on the United States. There's no question about that. And we were glad that the greatest despotic nation in the world was challenged in the New World by France. Still, I can't believe that a free nation has any right to export war. We need a modest Coast Guard that can protect us from improbable invasion, and we need a militia only till actual invasion. When you create a military machine, its one desire will be to roll. And if it can't roll over foreign innocents, it will surely roll over your own citizens. And meanwhile, it can only be funded by a ruinous national debt. A great nation does not require the, to arm itself to the teeth. A great nation is so just and beautiful that if it were attacked, its people would rise up spontaneously and repel the attacker. Mm -hmm. Sir, we are nearing the end of our hour together, and I feel led to quote, again, another successor of yours, President Kennedy, to recall that in giving a dinner party for leaders in the arts, sciences, including a number of winners of the Nobel Prize, was led to say in that august group, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent of human knowledge that has ever gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> we thank you.
I know you need to go. Let me just say that if John Kennedy said that, he never read about Mr. Madison or John Adams or John Quincy Adams. <laughs> uh, it's an elegant but an exaggerated statement. And I just want to say one word about a dinner party I held at the White House. The British diplomat Anthony Mary was there with his virago wife. They expected high protocol as they were used to in the old world. Uh, I had round tables and no seating charts. And when the dinner bell rang, I took in my friend Mrs. Madison rather than Mrs. Mary. The Mary sat in stunned silence through dinner. The Spanish ambassador was heard to say, Soto Voce, there will be war over this incident. <laughs> and after dinner, Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Mary came up and stood ashen-faced and uh, trembling with rage. And she said, Mr. President, I demand to know what is the protocol of your administration. I said, why, madam, it is pell-mell. <laughs> Thanks very much.